Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. If you could change anything about the American political system, what would it be? This question and more get answered in this week's episode. Once again, I will be turning over the podcast to Professor Andy Trees, who is the co-chair of the programming committee for the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, which will be held from November 1st to November 4th. Andy will be interviewing Professor David Ferris, David will be moderating one of our November 1st panels, The American Dream During a Time of Division. David will be talking with David Axelrod, the former senior advisor to President Obama, and to Bill Crystal, a political commentator and the former chief of staff to Vice President Quayle. This reprises a panel we held after President Trump was elected. And I'm curious to hear how things have changed in these intervening years. In the podcast, Andy and David have a wide-ranging conversation talking about everything from politics to baseball as they discuss our current political moment. Enjoy. Welcome to And Justice for All. I'm Andrew Trees, one of the programming co-chairs for this year's American Dream Reconsidered Conference. President Alexa Day has kindly turned the podcast over to me for the next few weeks to talk with some of the people involved in this year's conference, which will be held from November 1st through November 4th. In this week's episode, we are very fortunate to have a chance to talk with Professor David Ferris. He's going to be moderating our November 1st panel, The American Dream During a Time of Division, with panelist David Axelrod, political consultant and analyst, former senior advisor to President Obama, and Bill Kristol, political commentator and editor-at-large of The Bulwark, and former chief of staff to Vice President Quayle. And we're going to try to find out, or he will when he has the panel, uh, if there's still some common ground in our deeply divided nation. Uh, Professor David Ferris focuses on American political institutions, elections, and foreign policy. In 2018, he published a book on progressives and institutional reform that has perhaps my favorite political title in recent years, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. His first book was Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media, Blogging, and Activism in Egypt. He's published widely in a number of academic journals and also writes quite often for popular audiences. He's a contributing writer at The Week and has written op-reds for a wide number of publications, including the USA Today. U.S. News and World Report, NPR.org, the Chicago Sun-Times, the list goes on. Uh, he is also an avid fantasy baseball manager. I'm going to come back to that later uh, with a surprise question, but uh, I'm very excited today to have David Ferris with us. Welcome, David. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for that very kind introduction, and I'm excited to be here and excited for the conference and, uh, and for our conversation. Yeah. So I'm curious to jump right in. Clearly, you must have become, I'm thinking, a political junkie at an early age. Can you give us the uh, formative political experience? You know, you were watching some convention and you got the bug. When was it? 
Well, <clears throat> interesting story. When I was a boy, <clears throat> and this is in a small town in South Jersey, the uh, the T-ball teams in my hometown, this would this would be a complete nightmare today, actually bordering on inviting violence, but the T-ball the T-ball teams in my in my town were called the Democrats and the Republicans. So That's they awesome. so, swear to God. So they sort they sorted a bunch of like six year olds into our two competing political parties. And I got put on the Republican side and I just have never gotten over it. But uh, <laughs> but you know, my, my parents were both in, involved in politics and you know, we were the kind of family that would have the, you know, political yard signs for the uh, for the mayor and things like that in our, our little hometown and and I do actually do distinctly remember the 1988 presidential election, which is the first one that I have like actual conscious memories of. And of course, at the time, my parents were both liberals and they were disappointed in the results. But um, I, I do remember that it wasn't treated as the end of the world. <laughs> <right? laughs> yes. um, when, I, when I was a kid, it was like, you know, Dukakis lost. Oh, well, you know, we'll get him next time. And um, <laughs> yes. That's not how election nights go anymore. You know, it's like the losing side has a has a nervous breakdown on, on national TV. So yeah, yeah it's, it's hard again, right? It's, it's the end <laughs> right, of the world. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody's weeping. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's some combination of you know parents who were active in politics, which is as we know from political science, a very strong predictor of whether your kids are going to vote and be involved in politics. And then just you know when I when I got to high school, I started reading and, and writing about politics and. It was like when I was 15, Clinton got elected. So that was exciting to have a Democratic president for the first time since I was a, a wee tiny baby. And uh, so, and so, you know, I'm kind of a lifer. You know, I went from that to majoring in political science in, in college. And then I, I got my PhD in politics. So it's all hard to pinpoint the exact moment, but it's just always been a feature of my life for sure. <laughs> Tell me more about your parents and their political interests and involvement. Yeah, sure. So my dad was a Marxist. <laughs> Seventies, so he. Um, That's better than being a Marxist in the fifties, <laughs> right? No, uh, he probably wouldn't be alive then. But uh, no, it's. Um, <laughs> so he's a professor. It's the it's the family business. He's a community college professor, and so he was really, really quite a, quite on the far left when he was young, and uh, he's moved right over time, so that we now don't really see eye to eye about politics, even though we have a lot of love for each other. And my mom has always been a lefty. She's not. Uh, she doesn't follow politics as closely as the the men in her family do, um, but she's uh, you know she she does phone banking and stuff for Democratic candidates mm -hmm. on election day. So she she volunteers, and you know so that's they've they, you know they've never run for office and they weren't like campaign staffers or anything. I'd say they're just on the they're they were on the higher end of mm -hmm. <clears throat> what we would consider to be you know engaged sort of ordinary members of the electorate, if that makes sense. It does. So I'm curious, has he shifted far enough right that now they are uh, in, is it, it's a party misalignment within the family? Are they all on opposite sides of the political divide? I'm afraid they are. Yeah, it's definitely a James Carville, Mary Madeline situation. At, at my, I'm curious, at my can you now. give us, for those of us with families, you know, we we're, we have Thanksgiving coming up a couple months when, you know, we get the whole big group together and uh, you find that you have to cross the political divide. Any advice to managing that? I've seen some some dinners, uh, they, they sort of go sideways when uh, the wrong topic comes up these days. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it can be a tough thing to navigate. You know, I mean, it helps that we, we're all very close and we don't have any other real problems or disagreements <laughs> other, than, <laughs> other than politics. And um, so, but sure, sure. I mean, things occasionally get tense when, when these things come up and, 
my mom will always say to my dad, you know, Ralph, I preferred it when you were a communist, but I, I do still love you. Um, and, <laughs> and so it's, I think it's uh, just given the, the polarized environment and I think the way people are getting their news from almost entirely different sources. One, one strategy I've used with my dad that I think has helped us both is for us to talk through, not necessarily try, try to persuade one another that I'm right and you're wrong, but more try to come to, to an understanding about where our positions are coming from and mm-hmm. what, you know, what kind of information those positions are based on. And I think in, in those cases, we've occasionally been, been able to at least to get the other person to kind of take a second look at what they're saying or, or try to find some evidence for it. And I also, I really, I, I don't have any political science to back this up, Andy, but I do think it's, it does help to admit that you're wrong every, just every once in a while, <laughs> right? Just to convince the other person that you're persuadable and not that you were just fundamentally dug in and there's nothing you can say because at that point it's like why bother talking about it in in the first place you know and so there there has been I think we talk a little bit less about politics than we did maybe 20 years ago but we're able to talk about things civilly and and you know but it's that's a hard model to scale up because you can't you can't love everyone like your dad you know (laughs) that (laughs) is difficult It is what it is, right? <laughs> I do like that approach, though, that idea that you uh, try to step back and see, well, you know, what information or what, what viewpoint is this coming from, as opposed to just, you know, you are right, you're wrong. That sounds like a really wonderful, it sounds like you'd be a wonderful professor. That sounds exactly what you should be doing in the classroom. That sounds perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing our best. You know, we're, we're definitely doing our best. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know uh, you did a similar panel, in fact, with the, the same two panelists uh, several years ago in the wake of 2016. Uh, so I'm curious how things have changed from then to now. What's similar that you think is still sort of pressing and what's changed where you're like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So yeah, we're having a rematch. It's like Stevenson Eisenhower, you know, second time. <laughs> yeah, right. Hopefully <laughs> this goes better. For, 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 uh, Thunderdome. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that, that first panel was held not that long after Trump was selected. And um, so I think one of the overarching themes of that conversation was what are the, you know, what level of threat to democracy does this administration pose? And then what are the paths for Democrats to get back into power? And how do we get out of the wilderness here? And so that context has obviously changed because Democrats did get out of the wilderness, you know, over the course of two election cycles. And we're now talking about those threats to democracy in a different way, because the, because the the Trump administration is not in office anymore. But the former president does, I think, still play an extremely oversized role in our politics. And I think is the de facto leader of the, the movement and, and the Republican Party. And so I think one thing that didn't come up in, in our conversation a few years ago was the role that mistrust in election outcomes would would come to play so prominently in our politics today. That is, I think when people were game planning, uh, what 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 is President Trump going to do in, in this instance or that instance, nobody really gave a lot of thought to the idea that he would be able to convince many people in the Republican Party, in addition to it seems like a, you know, a pretty strong majority of, of the Republican electorate, that a national election was stolen without any meaningful evidence for it. And so that has been a new wrinkle. I think things that people were not necessarily like people were talking about how he wouldn't leave office, right? But like the the mechanics of it, the precise way that he would go about contesting the election, the way that he would enlist local officials and in, in on the action, that is all new in, in, in terms of what has transpired in the intervening years. 
as is this whole this whole discourse about you know using state legislatures to to override the will of the electorate if there's a dispute in you know Michigan or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. And so, you know, in 2017, it was like, <laughs> is he going to get us killed by, you know, accidentally nuking China or something? Can he be trusted with a nuclear football? That that kind of thing, uh, sort of his erratic decision making. And I think that what is really interesting is that the ongoing threat to democracy really is not about his erraticism. It's really about what seems like a more intentional and strategic plot to undermine confidence in the legitimacy of our electoral system. Which is, I mean, nothing can be da- more dangerous than a than a nuclear apocalypse. But it is, it is nevertheless, I think, pretty concerning that wherever you fall on this stuff, both of our major political parties are convinced that the other side is is bent on on destroying democracy. I, I happen to think that one side has more evidence for that <laughs> than the other. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, even if you disagree about that, the fundamental dynamic is is, I think, quite unhealthy. And so, I would imagine that that sort of general set of problems is going to be something that comes up in our in our conversation with with david axelrod and, and bill crystal i have to agree I, I when i look at what's happened in recent years the part that really surprised me is trump you know trump's going to do what he does i mean he's you know and that's that's kind of his brand but uh how many republican officials have kind of been willing to go along with it and play that game and you're right uh from questioning the election results and saying that it was stolen or changing the voting rules on the state level or stripping powers of democratically elected governors before they can take office so they can't do things. And I, like what I always want to say is, I don't know this, I feel like it's so short-sighted on their part because it's like, well, everything you're doing is, first of all, undermining the system as a whole. And let me just say, as the Republican Party, however, this if this breaks down, I don't think it's going to play out to your advantage. So I don't think that's really the end game you're looking for. And yeah. if, you're, if you're not, then you, how are you going to build a kind of party platform that that appeals to a majority of the population because just trying to slice off uh, parts of the electorate that you don't like and somehow make it too hard for them to vote okay you may it may work for a cycle or two but in the long run that's just not a viable strategy so i sort of feel like are you guys not like how long are you thinking you're going to do this party thing because i feel like if you want if you want to make this work you've got to come up with something else other than let's you know let's make it harder for people to vote and you know if you get elected in your democratic party you can't appoint these chairs anymore and i mean it just seems very short-sighted to me it is short-sighted i mean it's short-sighted in the sense that all of the weapons that they're unleashing on the us electoral system right now could conceivably be turned against them if circumstances change and the other problem is that as you noted it's none of this is helping them build an actual political majority in the united states and it's puzzling to me because I, I think that the, the fundamental principles of like limited government and lower taxes and a strong defense posture and the things that we associate with the Republican Party from the 80s and 90s, maybe not their, their precise form, right? But like the, but the abstract principles not just have enduring appeal in, in the United States. In a lot of poll surveys, when you ask, you ask these abstract questions about values, the conservative side does better. Like mm-hmm. that's one of the paradoxes of American politics. Many, but not all, sort of democratic or liberal policy positions pull better than their conservative counterparts. But the conservative framings of what it means to mm-hmm. be an American and what politics should be about, those things generally have more support than than the way that your your average progressive may may like to pose things in the abstract. And so I don't understand why fundamentally the party will not stand on those principles rather than sort of seek other ways to game the election results to, to get what they want out of them. 
And so that's, that's disappointing. I do think it is this, I, I think it is partially the result of a belief that I think is, is, is widely held in elite Republican circles, that their party cannot actually command a political majority in the United mm-hmm. States. And so they're reliant on some of the institutional quirks that, that empower minority parties in, in this country. They're convinced that demography is destiny, even though I think the last election proved that, proves that that's not true at all. And so when you're convinced that you can't win a fair fight, some people are going to turn, uh, some people are going to give up. <laughs> Other people are going to say, let's, let's not make it fair, right? Yeah, let's change the um, rules. <laughs> let's change the rules. Um, and I, I know that I wrote a book called It's Time to Fight Dirty, but <laughs> it's, uh, um, I, I really, all I really want is for the electoral field and the playing field to be fair, because I don't think it's healthy for democracy, for a party that commands a political minority to, to win a, a, an electoral majority over and over and over again. I think that's corrosive to our shared project here. And I think if I were alone in a room with, with some of these Republicans who are pushing some of these ideas, I would say, what do you hope to get out of this ultimately? Right. And if, you, right. if you come to power in a way that's going to spark widespread revolt, violence, possibly even secession, how is that a victory for you? You know, I mean, politics is about the the is how we resolve our disagreements without violence. Like that's, that's the first thing you tell people in, uh, in introductory classes. You're like, that's what we're doing here, right? You're never going to agree about everything. It's, it's, can we come to an agreement about dividing power based on elections uh, with the understanding that we will have another opportunity to get back into power if we lose. And that's something that's really being lost in American politics today. And I think it's extraordinarily dangerous. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I feel like, so it's interesting that Bill Chris will be there talking because obviously he's an anti-Trump Republican he certainly doesn't seem like he's in any sort of position or people like him to reassert control of the party. But I'm just curious, what what chances do you see in the future for the uh, Trump genie, not just the person, but the entire kind of electoral skullduggery to be put back in the bottle and for what we think of as more the traditional Republican Party, which would you know fight on the ground you're talking about, right? Lower taxes, smaller government, strong defense, some someone like that to come back in and kind of put forward that more traditional Republican platform and try to build appeal through ideas as opposed to other means. Yeah, it's, it's something that we don't, I don't think we really have precedent for this, for a president who was defeated to still maintain this kind of chokehold on, on the party itself. You know, I mean, we haven't had a, a president serve non, non-consecutive terms since um, Grover Cleveland. That was just once. Generally, when you are a first-term president and you lose, uh, you go bye bye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you go you go play some golf, or you 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 tend to your museum, or you get involved in in charitable works, or you start a foundation, or you do some grifting. I don't know. Trump is I think, <laughs> first. Uh... <laughs> I, I can imagine that conversation. Uh, let's talk about your presidential library. First of all, what's a library? <laughs> Shouldn't do that. I couldn't resist. We're going to charge people, right? It's not going to be a free library. Be a free library. We're going to sell Trump ties there. Maybe Trump steaks. <laughs> How are the burgers going to be? We have taco bowls. Um, yeah, so it's we're in really terra nueva here. I think, and certainly not in my lifetime. And I, I'm struggling to come up with an example of of, how, of when it, last time a de- defeated president had maintained such power in our public life. And so the idea of, I don't think the party can be clawed back from Donald Trump until Donald Trump has decided not to be around. Either he passes away or he like retires from public life in some capacity. And at that point, assuming one of his insufferable children does not inherit the mantle of Trumpism, 
you could see some of these more mainline Republicans staging a comeback as his departure from the scene allows for a collective reappraisal of what happened. You know, I think if mainline Republicans are going to take the party back, it's going to have to be a process of convincing and persuading their voters that there were things about Trumpism that did not work. I think that they will also have to admit that there were some things that did work for the party, maybe policies that remain popular, not just within the GOP, but but nationally. And so a, a sort of, a, I guess, a more nuanced take on it, if you were a never Trumper to come back and rather than say, you know, this guy was a disaster and a nightmare, and you're going to have to, you're going to have to split some hairs there if you want to convince people. But the reality is sometimes these internal party transformations just are, they just are what they are. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. the Rockefeller Republicans never took the party back from the Reaganites, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it would have to be a process of the whole country moving ideologically in a different direction. That is if, if current sort of generational demographic trends hold, this version of Republican policy is going to be especially unpopular in 10 or 15 years. And it's that point you could see people in the Republican party saying, kind of doing what the Democrats did in the eighties saying like, mm-hmm. look, we can't, we can't win running on this platform anymore. And so we're going to have to, we're gonna have to meet these guys in the middle somehow. And if I had to guess, I'd say that's, that's the more plausible route. It's fu- Yeah. I, it's funny. I mean, the talk to ask the sort of political science question, I feel like you, you go through these party transformations and usually they're preceded by this really evenly divided electorate where it seems like neither party can really claim much power for very long, right? It's always divided government and whatnot. But then underneath, uh, at some point, something's really changing fundamentally where one of the parties either goes out of business completely, right? And that's why you get the rise of the Republican Party before the Civil War, or the parties are transformed in some really profound way. We almost can't even predict where they start espousing ideas and having coalitions that were totally unlike the ones that came before. And so I wonder if we're on that sort of edge of that transformational process since we've been sort of stuck in this tightly divided era now for i don't know how many years but for a while at least 30 right i mean we're referring to this now as the polarization era and i think generally when parties have moved off of their positions and tried to sort of crawl towards the other side i guess in a form of defeat (laughs) it's after a series of drubbings right it's after you know, three or four or five or six consecutive national elections where you don't do very well, or at least the top of the ticket doesn't do very well. And so I think one of the things that that's pre- preventing that from happening to the Republican Party right now is, you know, they did win a trifecta in 2016, right? It was a yeah. trifecta, but they did win it. 2020 was much closer than was anticipated based on what the poll said. And I've written about this a couple of times, but you, you can't have a reappraisal, like you can't do an autopsy on your strategy <laughs> when the party line is that you actually won. And so because Trump has convinced other Republicans, I mean, I think I still think probably two thirds of elected Republicans know that this is all nonsense, but they're going along with it. But the electorate really believes it. And so because the electorate believes it, you can't be a GOP strategist and go out and be like, look, this is what went wrong last year in 2020. This is these are all the mistakes we made. Like they they haven't come to terms with it because they haven't admitted that they lost. And that really is. So I, I can't see much change happening as long as that's the case, I think it would probably take a more decisive repudiation at the ballot box. And that's not something that generally is especially likely to happen in a midterm election. And so I think the the time horizon for sort of routing the, the forces of Trumpism, either from the left or from within the Republican Party, I still think we're, you know, four to six years away from really being able to, to think about that happening. Yeah, part of what worries me, I, I think you're right. It's, I, I think there are structural problems with that because 
if you get rid of the Electoral College, right, the Republicans have been terrible in presidential elections for a long time now, but the Electoral College has kind of covered that up in a way that has allowed them not to address it. And same thing with the Senate, right, that actually Republican senators represent a really small percentage of the population compared to Democratic senators. But again, because of the way the Senate is set up, it sort of hides that population imbalance in ways that has allowed the Republicans to retain power, even though in some ways you could argue they really have not been able to command a majority, except occasionally, you know, a little squeaker in the House kind of thing. So I think it's sort of it's muted that process of kind of reevaluation. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, the institutions are a, a sort of a unique factor in the U.S. And I, I think for the first time in a long time, all of these little quirks are working against Democrats. Yeah and in favor of Republicans. And that has not always been the case. Yeah. And so that has, as you said, that has allowed, I think, Republican elites to say, well, we can win with 47%, right? We can win with 46%. Like we don't actually right. need 50% plus one because of these institutions. And so why would we change? And it's not like entirely irrational from a strategic perspective for, you know, for them. But I think that what they should try to think about, again, is like the long-term effects on legitimacy that is this, you know, the sense among the public that that power is being being wielded over them in a in a just and proper fashion. I think that's on the wane. It's obviously not on the wane just on the left. <laughs> it's it's on the wane with everyone, yeah. and that is something that will cause problems for everyone. Whether however you win office and what, whatever you want to do with it, the reality that there's a there's a deep lack of trust in our political system is something that really is is going to have to be addressed in, in a way outside of the electoral system, and 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 that's a conversation. You know, maybe we can talk about that at the event. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be yeah. fun. That would be interesting <laughs> to talk about. Uh, I'm going to ask you, so you're a fantasy baseball manager. I think you have two teams, two different teams you manage. So I love watching sports. <laughs> Three teams. Three. I yeah. love watching sports. And part of the reason I love it is I feel like it, it allows us to indulge our emotional, irrational side. You root for your team beyond all reason. You think every call that goes against them is the wrong call. You can argue it in completely over-the-top fashion. And that's the appropriate place for it, right? Because at the end of the day, the stakes are not that you're just talking about a game, right? Uh, I feel like that mentality has infected our political system where we're so focused sometimes on like who's winning the horse race right now and whatever, and not very much on the deeper issues. And I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a pervasive sort of media bias towards sensationalized horse race journalism that is like, if there was a nuclear war tomorrow, like Politico would run an article called like winners and losers of the apocalypse, you know, <laughs> like Donald Trump is, is well positioned to win a majority of the, of the rebel votes yes. uh, in all of the destroyed states of America. Um, and it's, it's, it's really deeply ingrained. I mean, uh, those of us who comment publicly on these things, as you know, sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes that's what the editors want. Sometimes you try to write about more substantive things and it, it can't happen. Sometimes you do write about more substantive things and no one reads it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so it's uh, people always complain about the media, but ultimately the media is, uh, especially in the U.S., really responding to the incentives that, that, that the consumers of that media give them. Mm-hmm. And if the eyeballs go to Politico and that kind of coverage, then they're going to do more of it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because sports is like that, right? It is a horse race. It's like who won and who lost. But it's also it, it also is more a bit more frivolous than than politics is supposed exactly, to be. Exactly, right? It's it, that's You can be that way because it's just your right, baseball like, team or whatever. <laughs> I'm trying to get the Phillies into the playoffs, you know, with, with my uh, with my prayers. And uh, it, it, I don't know. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it's like when you're like a grown person 
you know, you can't crawl into bed for a day because your baseball team lost. You know, it's like not, it's really not acceptable, especially when you have children. You know, it's like uh, you have to model good behavior for them. And <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is a shame that 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 that's the way that politics is covered in in many places. And I think it's it's our responsibility as as educators to to treat the project of politics more seriously. It's why I always begin my American politics classes by with kind of a serious discussion about like, well, what are we actually trying to achieve here with politics? You know, why do you think that every single person in, in DC is, is crooked and cynical? Because I don't actually think that that's true. I, and I think that when you communicate cynicism to your students and to your readers and the media, you shouldn't necessarily be surprised when you get cynicism back and mm-hmm. when not caring about it. And so I, I like to think that it really is all of our sort of collective responsibility to speak about politics in a more substantive and responsible way than we sometimes see happening on, on TV and, and in some of the newspapers and stuff. So it's a hard needle to thread because ultimately the results of these elections do matter. The polls are very interesting to follow. I, I load 538 like 14 times a day. Like <laughs> yes, exactly. Especially in the lead up to the election. So I'm not immune to it. You know, it's just you, you yep. have to keep one eye on the horse race and another eye on um, all the other substantive things that are supposed to be a part of a, a, of a healthy civic culture and a healthy democracy. And, and I'm afraid that we are not doing that great on that score right now. <laughs> well, well, so let me ask you, uh, assuming as they're bound to do soon to put a political science professor in charge of fixing our political system, David, if you could just put on your magic hat and make two or three structural changes to our political system to try to fix some of our problems, what would they be? Okay. Well, so you're making me God Emperor of the world for a day. Yes, exactly. You don't have to worry about the electorate, re-election, nothing. Yeah, I'm going to say what I say to people who offer me a French fry from their French fry plate, which is do you, you have to think about what you're getting yourself into right now. <laughs> I will I will eat all of the fries. But uh, I mean, first of all, I would abolish the U.S. Senate. Okay, um, the, the U.S. Senate, I think, had a reason to exist in 1787 when the states themselves had really distinct interests and identities. And there was probably an argument for not having the voices of any of those original 13 states drowned out by the others. Today, the differences between states are like mildly cultural, but fundamentally you're going to, you're going to go to the same Starbucks and the same Applebee's and every, every 50 states. And it, having a, a body in which the states themselves get, get equal votes does not really comport with our contemporary understanding of democracy. In fact, the Supreme court outlawed Senate like schemes at the state level in the 1960s. Right. You yeah, can't right. do this anymore. In a very meaningful sense, the Senate itself is unconstitutional, right? It, it violates the principle of one person, one vote. It skews our politics. It empowers smaller states at the expense of, of more populous areas. You know, you, you can go on, on conservative media and you, you find compelling rationales for why we shouldn't abolish the Senate, but I don't find them very convincing. And in, indeed, I am the God Emperor, so I would abolish that. So, you, yeah, you get to what you want. Yeah, I can do whatever I want. Um, and if it's, if it's just two things, I would go with enlarging the size of the House of Representatives and making the representational formula for it proportional in some way. Mm. Uh, in, in an ideal world, it would look like Germany's electoral system where they they have uh, half of the, their parliament elected through districts like the U.S. does, and then half of it elected through a more pure proportional representation scheme to kind of try to take the best of both worlds. I, I unfortunately not sure that's going to fly here constitutionally. So I would just say if we have multi-member districts, that is, you're electing more than one person out of your con- congressional district with ranked choice voting, that is where you are able to to rank the candidates from one to 10 or whatever it is, and make sure that your ballot is not thrown out if your candidate loses. 
your, your fourth choice candidate, right? Those things, I think a lot of, not, again, there's no consensus in political science about anything, okay? But I think the balance of the consensus in the field is that the, those two reforms would ensure that Congress is more representative of public opinion broadly, would give people more choice and buy-in on election day. And it could create some incentives to, to alter policy positions because in a multi-member district scheme, no one is a, no one is in a safe seat anymore, really. Mm-hmm. And so you can't just you can't just play, play to your base, and your your primary is no longer become your most important election mm-hmm. for, for the Congress. And so those those two things, I think, would really go a long way towards reducing the sort of counter-majoritarian features of our democracy that I, I really do think are at the root of of many of our problems right now. But I think also opening the political space up to more parties would reduce the the sort of the behavioral dynamics that that force people to dig in with their partisanship again going back to sports you know and it's either you know it's either the Phillies or not the Phillies right um, if I liked six or seven teams I'd be happier wouldn't I so since I adopted the two Chicago teams in addition to the Phillies I had many more opportunities to be happy Andy and that's right like that's, that's right need in the world that's what we need so. <laughs> all right uh, one last question for you David Tell me, give me, can you give me a few reasons why Roosevelt students should be optimistic about the future of American politics? If this, we can make the previous question the last question. If you're like, I can't do it. I can't come up with any reasons for optimism. Well, Andy, I think I lost you. I don't have a good connection. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sure. If you're, you know, if you're leaning to the left as many, but of course not all Roosevelt students do. But if you look at voting patterns among people under the age of, of 45, those cohorts have been voting very sharply Democratic since 2002, 2004. Um, so basically, people my I'm 43, so p- folks my age and younger tilt very heavily towards the Democratic Party. And that's a reason for optimism for a couple of reasons, right? If you are a Republican who's dissatisfied with the direction under Trump, I think having young people deliver a series of, of beatings to you <laughs> over time will, will, will give you the opportunity to stage a, a reconquest of the Republican Party towards your preferred uh, direction and and for those uh, those of our students who lean to the left, I think there's very clear signs that Republicans are going to have trouble winning national elections if they don't alter their coalition a little bit. And so, either they will lose over and over again, or they will moderate. And and our and our politics might take on a less apocalyptic character over time. I, I think that we are in this sort of unique moment where frustrations have have come to a boil. And we don't necessarily have anywhere to put them because we have not undertaken the difficult work of institutional reform. You know, uh, we keep shifting power back and forth between the two parties every two years, every four years. And it makes it very difficult to choose a policy direction. Um, it makes everyone feel very nervous that the other side is going to take power and we're never going to get another shot. I, I think hopefully over the next four, six, eight years, some of those dynamics will, will be damped down a little bit. And another reason for optimism is that young people... Uh, Generation Z in particular is showing more signs of political engagement than particularly Generation X and, and the millennials did at this stage of their cohort development. So Generation Z is that's how we refer to people born after 1996 so far. I don't know how they make these generational distinctions. I, it's like there's, there's like a ceremony at the hospital at the midnight <laughs> on December 1st. This baby's for new generation. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. This one's not going to watch Star Trek: Next Generation. This one's going to watch. Uh, this one's going to eat avocado toast and uh, never going to pick up the phone. You got to text this baby. Okay, you're really going to text this baby. So it's it's all a bunch of social constructs, right? But like the the reality is, you know, the ha- half of the country that is young has has pretty different political 
leanings than the, than the half that is older. And that's really going to have some consequences in the years to come. I'm very optimistic in the medium term about some of these things. I think that we have some difficult times ahead in the, in the short term and, and how we handle those times and, and what condition we come out of them, I think could, could go a long way towards determining what the experience of their thirties and forties is going to be for, for many of our students. But, uh, I, I am a, a congenital optimist at heart, and I, I still do think that there's there's reasons to believe that that things might be better in a few years. Well, thank you, David. It has been, as always, very entertaining talking with you. I hope all the people listening will uh, please come to the American Dream Reconsider Conference this November, the first to the fourth. I think there'll be a lot of great panels, including the one led by David. And uh, if you're interested in this or other podcasts, you can go to roosevelt.edu backslash podcast to hear all these, uh, Dave and I have an extended conversation. It actually goes on for six hours, so I welcome you all to cut that <laughs> unedited version. <laughs> Director's cut. Yeah. <laughs> Great talking to you, David. Great talking to you, Andy. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.